Drive Time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and on today's show, it is Turn the Page Wednesday. It brings us to another preview podcast here. We're looking ahead at Sunday to the Carolina Panthers by assessing the matchups, looking at the biggest storylines and the keys to victory from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. Another sunny Sunday at Hard Rock Stadium. And for those out-of-town fans, you might be excited to learn that it's supposed to be an absolute scorcher on Sunday. We've had a tame October in terms of temperatures recently, but that is out the window when the Carolina Panthers migrate south for this interconference affair. A heat wave is currently pushing through South Florida that will have you 90-degree temperatures on Sunday with 75% humidity, and that gives you a real feel of 96 degrees. Yowza! That's one of the many obstacles the winless Panthers will face when they arrive in South Florida for this matchup. Coach McDaniel spoke about the dangers of facing a winless team and how they kind of play with nothing to lose and the being pushed up against a losing streak like the Dolphins were last year on a five-game losing streak, the same thing the Panthers face this year, that you can get a little bit more production, a little bit more gusto, a little bit more urgency when you're coming off of those situations. So something to keep an eye on. Coach touched on that. He touched on Bryce Young, the Panthers uh, as a whole, in his Wednesday press conference. Not going to play the sound for you guys here because I think that it's, you know, Coach... Um, speaking about an opponent, and you can just find that on the YouTube channel on his media availability. Let's do a brief history here of the Panthers before we get to the storylines ahead of this contest. And the 2008 Panthers is where I wanted to start this because that was one of my favorite teams of all time. The backfield of Jonathan Stewart, D'Angelo Williams, they had shades of Ricky and Ronnie or of Kamara and Ingram and Nolens. The days of the two-headed run-heavy attack running back that doesn't really exist anymore. You have committees nowadays, and some teams have their top dogs, but it's just different. Back then, it was like you have one good one, great. If you have two really good ones, then you were kind of a unicorn across the National Football League. But then fittingly, I also fell in love with them from afar again. I used to always pick like one NFC team every year that I thought was going to exceed expectations and had players I liked, maybe went draft-heavy on Travis's man crushes in the draft. I don't really do that anymore. I, I, I guess I just don't care. I don't have the time now that I have uh, family and kids to actually you know, follow around opposed to just being a full-time football fan. But those Panthers teams often put themselves in that category. And ironically, again, with one of the best runners of all time, but at the quarterback position with Cam Newton. And in those Newton years, they were playoff regulars, a threat to make a run through the NFC playoffs every single season. Since then, man, it has been a slog. I distinctly remember... Cam balling out in that 2017 playoff game against the Saints in a very, very fun back-and-forth game with Drew Brees and a very talented Saints roster. Wasn't that the Saints team that got bounced by the... No, that was the following year. I digress. And I bet one that Panthers, thinking back to that game, think of rather fondly given their recent run because a 7-9 season followed that and then the floor fell out. In 2019, a 5-11 campaign. Remember, they still only play 16 games in this sport. And that brought the end of the Ron Rivera era, the Riv era. I'll be here all week. Tip your waitresses and bartenders. Nine seasons, four playoff runs, an offensive rookie of the year, 
followed by a defensive rookie of the year, followed by a defensive player of the year. That was the same guy, Luke Keekley, a Walter Payton man of the year and Thomas Davis. And then Cam Newton bookends his rookie of the year with an MVP in 2015. And of course, Rivera had coach of the year in 2015 as well. Enter Matt Rule, 5-11, and 5-12, 1-4, and then a coaching change as Steve Wilkes steps in and guides them to a 6-6 six and six finish, but they move on. And I was against that, but I also love Frank Reich, so I understand that decision, who was kind of the surprise dismissal of the league last year falling on the sword in Indianapolis. Sword? Sword? And the reason I lay all of this out is to say the type of turnover they've experienced typically creates a snowball effect of conflicting ideals and puts you in a difficult position from a roster construction standpoint. I mean, I told you guys this. I told you guys this. And not to victory lap here too hard five games in, but it was always, always glaringly obvious to me, as it was pre-draft, they took the wrong guy. They just took the wrong guy. They traded up eight spots and were staring one of the most polished quarterbacks to come out since 2020 when Tua and Burrow were coming out as polished quarterbacks. They were staring another freak of nature who, quite frankly, might be the best ball of raw clay the position has ever seen, at least since Vic and Anthony Richardson. And they took the wrong guy. You know, I see Jets fans questioning why Zach Wilson can't harness all this great talent that he possesses. And that confusion is really just a symptom of not knowing what the hell you're watching. Like, sorry, not sorry, but bailing on clean pockets and throwing cool pro day throws down the field against former or future insurance salesmen doesn't really move the needle at this level, Bubba. Bryce Young was a master creator in college. He rarely won from structure. And isn't it crazy how that through line like never changes? That's my soapbox. No, it's not, because to me, it's just so weird that CJ Stroud is balling. And Bryce Young is not so far. So weird. And the worst part and why I feel for Frank Reich, and it's pretty widely known that Reich and Josh McCown, one of the sharpest quarterback minds in the business that we have, Josh McCown, they wanted C.J. Stroud. There's a clip going around of McCown saying to Stroud, we'll find a court in Charlotte when you get here. Didn't happen that way. As Dave Tepper, the owner, steps in and essentially turns the card in on draft night in the way that Billy Bunch numbers on Panthers Twitter might do. Might as well have those TikTok analysts make your pick at that point. Arm strength, good 40 time. Hey, send it in. That's good quarterback play. All right, I'm done. Can you tell I'm salty on that topic? Rookie quarterback struggling in an offense that has seen a lot of turnover. They traded DJ Moore to go get Bryce Young, and they've missed him in the wide receiver room as well. Adam Thielen is their current number one receiver, and as far as proven players, that's about it at the wide receiver position. They have some promising young guys on the perimeter, but add the fact in that they haven't developed yet, and Thielen has taken a step back in terms of his speed and explosiveness and doesn't really constitute a huge threat anymore. But you can just see on tape them ignoring or ironing out some of the challenges that come with growing and learning together as a young offense. And the early hits of their last three draft classes have had issues staying on the field. It's another reason why you wind up with this win-loss record they have. And that's kind of the recipe of an 0-5 team, right? Like a building team who sees some bad luck wipe out some of their most promising stars. Their best draft pick of the last three years was J.C. Horn, but he's had a bunch of bad injury luck. Same with offensive tackle Brady Christensen. That same class produced Terrence Marshall, Tommy Tremble, Chuba Hubbard. Last year, they get Ike Iquanu, who had a rough first year. He's been better in year two, but still hasn't taken that massive jump. Matt Corral was their next pick in that draft, and he's not even there anymore. Then the production from the rest of the class has been for lack of a better word, wanting. This year, Young, Mingo, DJ Johnson, Chandler Zavala, and Jamie Robinson. D. 
Defensively, they're working in a new system. It's driven by four really nice pieces and Brian Burns, who's up for a new contract next March. Von Bell, Frankie Louvu, and Derek Brown. That gives them the makings of a really nice defensive core. They're still in the process of getting up to speed and new defensive coordinator Ejiro Evero's system, a guy that was a candidate for the Dolphins down here in the D.C. role that eventually was taken by Vic Fangio. So that's the Panthers. They're currently 0-5. They've been one of the roughest teams to watch on tape. Maybe they bounce back here a little bit on Sunday. Maybe they don't. Here are the key storylines I'm tracking heading into that game on Sunday, and it's all for the home side. Like, these preview games, like, don't get me wrong. I love that we have them now that we're a, a really damn good football team, but, you know, these are games you had to used to think about certain advantages, you know, West Coast team coming east or the heat in South Florida. Like, that stuff just doesn't really matter to me anymore because I expect a certain standard here. And one of those is the first five and one start in 21 years. You might recall back in 20 or 2003 that they had a chance to go five and one, didn't make it happen because of an overtime loss. But with a win, you maintain your position atop the division, you maintain the tie or potentially overtake the Chiefs, who I don't think are going to lose tomorrow night on TNF, but you never know. Do you guys, going back to that 03 season, do you remember that sixth game? Boy, do I. You know those weird memories you have that just stick forever for no apparent reason? Like, it's not substantial. It's not significant. I'll never forget. My brother brought me over to his girlfriend's house one day after high school before I could drive. He was a senior. I was a freshman. And I remember watching Pardon the Interruption the day after we lost in overtime to the Patriots on that long Troy Brown touchdown. And for whatever reason, I remember sitting in that room watching that show when probably what was going on in the other room. I didn't, wasn't privy to at the time, but now probably am a little more privy to. Uh, but Kornheiser and Wilbon were doing an entire segment on why Olindo Mario had missed two kicks off the dirt, despite that being his home field. I'll never forget that, and I hate that game. That was the last time the Dolphins had a chance to go, f- or yeah, I think that was the last time they had a chance to go 5-1, didn't do it. They did do it 21 years ago, though, back in 2002. Next storyline, Bama v. Bama. There are four Bama quarterbacks in the National Football League right now. Two was one of them, and he's going to face all three of the others in the next three consecutive games. He's already 1-0, beating Mac Jones back in Week 2. Now he gets the latest Heisman winner there at Alabama, and of course he'll see Jalen Hurts next week, and then Mac Jones again in Week number. Eight. Two trends that play into our defensive splits here is in my next storyline. We struggled in two games defensively. Those games were quarterbacked by top 10 players at their position in Herbert and in Josh Allen. And those games were on the road. We allow 17.7 points per game in the other three games, two of those at home, one against a broken Patriots offense. And I think that's super impressive considering that those two games were multiple score leads in the third quarter. The Panthers, our next storyline here, are in search of win number one just to be privy of some tomfoolery. Playoffs are probably out the window. Teams like this tend to have nothing to lose. They tend to empty the playbook a little bit. I think back to that 2021 game versus the Jets when they were down here, and I want to say they went up 17 to 10 at one point in that game despite being an awful football team that year, and they were throwing double passes. They were going for it on fourth and medium, and Zach Wilson was doing Zach Wilson stuff, but they were still like pushing the ball somehow. Just be weary of a team with nothing to lose. And then finally here, my last storyline, staying on pace offensively. This gets into privilege as a Dolphins fan right now. And Seth always makes fun of me for this on the in the press box when we're watching games at the radio station, when we're doing radio, whatever we're doing. He always gets on me about this because I have a particular, you know, certain statistical interests that I think can kind of back some of the things that I have claimed are going to happen. And some of those things are like, hey, Tua, go throw another touchdown pass here and boost your passer rating. Like, I wouldn't mind seeing that over a two-yard rushing touchdown sometimes. And when it comes to the Dolphins' all-time pacing offense, 
I think it's worth tracking. Tua pacing for over 5,000 passing yards. I want to see that. Tyreek pacing for close to 2,000 receiving yards. I want to see that. Can we sustain a 350 yards passing per game mark? 100 plus for Tyreek. 500 on total offense. Can we stay as the number one rushing offense in the NFL and passing offense? I want all those things to happen. So I want a 500 yard day. And these are the kind of teams you can get those against. So those are a few things I'm keying on. Let's go ahead and take our first break right there and come back on the other side. And we will break down this matchup in terms of offense and defense and how the Panthers line up on both sides of the football there. That's all next Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Winkfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Can you guys sense a different sound? Today, I'm using a new microphone, and I'm, I hope it works out. I'm very excited about the quality of the sound. Um, just let me know if you notice a difference. Let's go ahead and get into the Dolphins' offense versus the Panthers' defense here. And you guys know the matchups by now. The quarterback, Tua Tungabailoa, the safeties he will face. Von Bell plays 100% of their snaps, and Jeremy Chen plays just 55%. That was interesting to me, that he kind of is a essentially a nickel defender at this point in a defense that I think should feature him some more. He's a freak athlete. He can do multiple things going front and backwards and side to side. Just think you should see more of Jeremy Chin. And then Sam Franklin, a third safety, also plays 50% plus of the snaps. So they run a lot of that big nickel package with three safeties and just two corners. Perhaps one of the reasons you do that is because they don't, they're down their top corner right now. J.C. Horn's not playing. So C.J. Henderson is their top perimeter guy. He plays 72% of the snaps. Actually, Dante Jackson plays more. Sorry, 75% for Dante Jackson, 72% for C.J. Henderson. And then Troy Hill's their primary inside corner at 48% of the workload. But most of Jeremy Chin's snaps come in the slot as well. So interesting matchups there in terms of athletic ability. All these guys can go a little bit. We'll talk more about that here in just one second. And then... As far as their front goes, that's where I think they're probably best in this defense. Derek Brown is an absolute load, and he plays 87% of the snaps on the interior. That's impressive. Shy Tuttle plays 62%. He's a very good player as well. Keep an eye on those two guys. And then Deshaun Williams plays 52% on the interior. Off the edge, another place where they feature a like all-pro type of talent in Brian Burns. Man, he is good. He is bendy. He is twitchy. He's explosive. He had a forced fumble in the game down here back in 2021 when he went up against Jesse Davis. Luckily, that won't happen again, but keep an eye on Brian Burns and Derek Brown and then Von Bell and Frankie Louvu, kind of my key guys to keep an eye on. But back to the edge, Yatir Grossmatos is a length like, like Brian Flores front edge, you might compare it to like Emmanuel Ogba, but he has nowhere near the juice of Ogba. He plays 50% of the snaps, and then Justin Houston played 45% of the snaps off the edge. It's it's To me, it's block Brian Burns, and you'll be good. And the Dolphins have done such a good job of preventing edge rushers from wrecking games so far this season. And then running backs versus linebackers, we're down to you know Mostert and Ahmed. We'll see if Jeff Wilson gets activated, which, by the way, if you didn't hear the news already, Devon Acham on the injury reserve officially, and uh, Jeff Wilson has had his 21-day window activated uh, or he's been opened that window and they can activate him at some point in the next 21 days. But Frankie Louvu, 88% of the snaps go Cougs. He is a fantastic linebacker, formerly of the New York jets. And then a familiar face, Kamu Gruje Hill plays 47% of the snaps in that defense. Again, operate primarily out of big nickel packages. In fact, nickel is their 64% preferred defensive package, but they do run a lot of base. There's not a lot of sub package beyond that. 24% base in their 3-4, which gets them Derek Brown on an edge, gets Shy Tuttle over the nose tackle, and then they operate with Brian Burns primarily as their top rusher off the edge, and Frankie Louvu holding down that middle linebacker spot. They do operate from dime defense 5% of the time. They play some zero coverage, 10%. 
I can't imagine they'll do that in this game. You'd be crazy to do that against this Dolphins offense. But they're in two high 58% of the time and single high 37% of the time, which is actually fifth most in the National Football League. I think we'll see a lot less of that this week as they, again, good, try it. Try and play a single high against Miami and see what happens. That's what happens when the Giants kind of went single high or they busted, but they turned into what a turned out to be a single high look on that 69-yard touchdown pass against Tyreek. We also had the 35-yard touchdown pass to Tyreek and single high against the Chargers. And we also had the, I don't remember how many yards it was, 47-yard completion to set up a game winner there against the Chargers. Again, against single high with a uh, man-free coverage with press coverage underneath. Don't do that. You can. I hope you do, but I wouldn't do it. So they're almost almost exclusively base on first down, almost exclusively nickel on second down. So you can kind of manipulate how you want to attack them with, you know, I love that fast 21 personnel or they get sometimes three backs out there and go to work on teams stuck in their base package with all the speed we have at running back might be different now without a Chan, but uh, then they influx a heavy use of dime on third down, regardless of the down and distance. So they play as many light boxes as anybody else does. You know, we're kind of in that category as well, but go back to the Vikings tape and they ran six man or fewer boxes, 80% of their snaps. And that's with Jefferson Addison and Osborne as the top three receivers. I like Miami's a lot more, although Jefferson and Tyreek is probably a take-your-pick option, but Addison, Waddle, that's where the big standout is. And then obviously, you know, the things that Berrios and Cedric and Craycraft and those guys can all do, although Craycraft's not here right now, you get what I'm saying. But you never know. I'm guessing they fear our deep passing game a little bit more, maybe. Maybe not. If Again, if not, try it. Try me. I wouldn't do it. Either way, here are their season numbers in those departments. So five-man boxes is like unheard of and that's a lot of third down so that's 13 percent. but six man boxes is their preferred option 37 percent. raheem you're up big dog like if they're gonna play that you have to run the football seven man box is not light but it's not heavy 31 percent, and then eight man box is just 12 percent of the time so another game of deep balls and running game that was kind of my forecast last week and that worked out pretty good will it work out again here i tend to think so because i don't think anybody can stop this offense and they've also struggled tackling i think partially because they are banged up on the back end their best cover corner is down that's jc horn and so is their best linebacker Shaq thompson that's a tough loss for those guys for posterity they're also without one of their better run defenders and henry anderson and they're also down three offensive linemen two starters and brady christensen and austin corbett and then one of the replacements for the starter at left guard and chandler zavala so down to left guard number three uh, on this offense that's in the next segment though but back to the missed tackles 43 are the third most behind the giants and texans and then last thing here structurally Jiro evero He's been in that Fangio tree and subscribes to lots of the same principles, so light boxes, some fronts that leave those interior gaps open, like no no zero or one technique, so they can combat some of our speed off the edges, but it does leave them lighter in the inside, and without Shaq Thompson, they've struggled to fit those inside runs, so they're averaging... Teams are averaging 4.9 yards per rush against them. That's fifth most in football. And the 704 yards allowed total is the seventh most in football. Some of the specific matchups I'm looking for here, Dante Jackson is feisty as hell, number 26. Just keep an eye, though, if he goes out to Tyreek Hill because he never saw a gamble he didn't want to take. Those double moves that Tyreek can hit or just those quick releases at the line of scrimmage, like if he gets feisty and wants to come up and press and try to jam and you strike out, usually that means it's a home run on the back end, to use a couple of baseball terms there. But he's Tyreek is just so adept at finding those little things in guys' games and exploiting them. So I expect whether it happens early or he comes back middle of the game and says, hey, Tua, I got this move on 26 when he's out there. Check it out. And keep an eye for a game-changing play when 10 is across from 26. Uh, Jackson didn't play last week. He was a game-time decision, so I assume he is back in the fold there. But Deshaun Jamison replaced him. I mean, 
Yeah, if if it's not good with the starter, I can't imagine it's much better with the backup going against a guy like Tyreek Hill. And we have to have an answer for two guys in this defense. I mentioned it already. Brian Burns and Derek Brown. I'd add Von Bell to that as well. Those are the playmakers, as well as Frankie Luvu. But Burns is one of the best pass rushers in the business, has just insane bend and burst and strength, one of the best finishers in terms of finishing off his sacks. Brown is power, power, power. And I thought we did a pretty good job on Dexter Lawrence last weekend. He did have that bull rush that forced an interception, so not a clean job across the board. And Brown is akin to him in the way that he can kind of push the pocket and get your quarterback off that spot and that interior pressure. It's the worst place to have pressure in the National Football League. So just keep an eye on that matchup. Connor Williams, one of the best centers in the National Football League. And I think we've all grown to appreciate that now, finally, despite what, you know, Last year's PFF grades, my set, or whatever the case may be, or a couple of bad snaps in training camp. He's one of the best centers in football. But if there's one thing that can get him, it's power. And Derek Brown has that power. The way Miami runs the ball off the perimeter really quells pass rushes. So I, I just wonder if you see more of that and continue to, you know, keep these top edge rushers in contain based upon the system. And then I mentioned Frankie Luvu again, go Cougs. He's a playmaker, man. He and Von Bell are two guys that I just think Tua needs to have eyes on every single snap. They like to change the picture post snap, kind of like we do down here. That's be a fun chess match to watch as he goes up against those guys. And then obviously Frankie Luvu in the running game versus Raheem Mostert. Raheem has had so many instances of one-on-one at the point of attack. And those plays are always super fun to watch. I think we're going to see a script like this in this game. A ton of run game success, a lot of quick hitters against soft coverage, and then some intermediate timing throws that we typically hit. And then I think that turns it into night-night time where they get a little bit frustrated. They kind of creep up a little bit more. Tired cornerbacks in this hot, hot heat who are, you know, aren't particularly fast on the perimeter. I always love looking at the speed athletic metrics of the opposing defense. And C.J. Henderson, 4-4 flat guy, but he builds to that speed. 70th percentile 10 split, so you can kind of get him in the long game. And then Dante Jackson is similar. 4-3-2 guy, that's great, but 75th percentile in the 10 split. I think you take that short stuff, they, then you start pressing their toes to kind of get them to squat, and then you break it off the top of the route, whether it's comebacks, digs, or a takeoff move. Sudden movement at the top of the route, a secondary move will get these guys taking the cheese, and that's where you can hit your big explosive passing plays. They're allowing 28.8 points per game. They've allowed 17 touchdowns. Those are both the fourth most. A bad formula for a Dolphins offense that is cruising right now they play a lot of soft and off keep the roof on the house and hold opposing offenses to the seventh least yak with a combination of just 7.4 average yards depth of target so they do a good job of limiting big plays and tackling well not in the tackling numbers but as far as yak goes they prevent it from being too bad you might have to take the longer route here you know more plays to get your points rather than the quick explosive drives especially without a chan back there but who knows we do such a good job of taking teams out of their comfort zone. I would never say I expect the opposing defense to dictate any terms here for the Miami Dolphins. They blitz 21% of the time. Again, similar to our rates, because again, the defensive structure here is similar. We are at 22.7%. They do get pressure on 20%. And again, that's a lot of Brian Burns doing what he does best. I always like our interior three that we have going right now because of how well connected they are playing inside. And Connor Williams just has this penchant, man, for going over and helping either guy at the guard position to find work uh, in the pass protection game. So then it comes down to finding a way to contain Burns. Would make a lot of sense to help him there, but again, we so frequently see the scheme create so much indecision for the edges and wind up utilizing aggressiveness against them to get the overplay, and then you have an answer for that. Gosh, it's fun covering a team that is uh, very smart offensively. So who the hell knows what coach has cooked up, but I trust him to do whatever it is he's going to do. I mean, why would you not?
So that's the Dolphins offense versus the Panthers defense. Let's go ahead and take a break here and come back on the other side and do Panthers offense versus Miami defense. That's next drive time podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield brought to you by auto nation. Sunday, 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 Dolphins host the Panthers, and Bryce Young comes to town for his first visit to Hard Rock Stadium. And we take a look at the matchups here. Young against a trio of safeties in Holland, Elliott, and Jones. I've loved the way Elliott has kind of molded into the lineup here after that first game. Thought we missed him pretty badly against the Buffalo Bills in Week 4. And the receivers that they'll throw out against Xavier Howard and Cater Kohu and Eli Apple and Justin Bethel and maybe Cam Smith, who the hell knows, uh, they are DJ Chark at 69% of the workload, but that's because he's missed some time. So when he's healthy, he's their go-to guy. Jonathan Mingo is a rookie who's played 60% of the snaps. And then Terrace Marshall has played 51 off the perimeter. But you go inside to the slot. Adam Thielen has played 91% of the total snaps, but he is a 77% slot guy. Hayden Hurst, a tight end who I love a whole bunch, plays 56% of the snaps. And then Tommy Tremble plays 25% of the reps. That's their skill group. We'll talk about them here more in just a moment. Um, and then on the interior, like I said, they're down to left guard three. I think it's going to be Cade Mays at that spot. Otherwise, the right guard is a former college tackle in uh, Th- uh, Throckmorton is his last name. And then Bradley Bozeman's the center. He's a good player, but the guard position has been shaky for them, as has the tackles in Ike Kwanu and Taylor Moten, who go up against potentially Jalen Phillips, Bradley Chubb, Andrew Van Ginkle, Emmanuel Ogba. And then the running backs, uh, Miles Sanders gets 54% of the workload versus Chuba Hubbard's 41% of the workload. And if you're looking for variety, and we'll talk, this is a theme here in this part of the podcast. There's just not much there. They run 11 personnel 87% of the time. They run 12 personnel 9% of the time. And that gives you, what, 5% left. The next highest grouping is 01 personnel. Let's say four wide receivers, one tight end set. Basically, your spread offense, that's 2.5%. They've been trying to find the right mix of options for Bryce. And, you know, Frank Reich recently said that he regretted not having Terrace Marshall a bigger part of their game plans. So I think the natural assumption there is that we get to see more of him. Now, their wide receiver core is the opposite of ours. It's big bodies who try to win contested jump balls at their best. Thielen has been the go-to guy, and, you know, it's pretty obvious they pump the ball to him. He operates primarily out of the slot, but the root of their issues to me has been threefold from what I can see on tape. Number one, rookie quarterbacks typically don't see things as quick as a veteran, and that looks to me to be the case on offense. I think you can see it in their pre-snap alignment issues. They are the most penalized team in the National Football League, 41 total flags. They have the most pre-snap infractions with 23. When I watch them on tape every week, you see some frustrating body language out there. And typically for number 19. First, they run a ton of screens. Ask yourself, why? Why would Denver do that? Travis, it's Carolina, but the Brian Windhorst meme lives on. Why would they do that? Remember when Adam Gase gave up on Ryan Tannehill back in 2018 in that game against the Colts and refused to let him put the ball in the air with a lead on like third and six plus? You kind of get some of that here. I watched three games and on multiple occasions, Bryce Young forgets the play. There was a screen pass against Minnesota where he takes a five-step drop and then remembered mid-snap it was a screen. Then he like threw it and put his head down like he was frustrated at himself and just accepted that he's going to get an ineligible man downfield flag because you can't do that in the screen game. Uh, Just doesn't have the full complement of the offense yet. Like they are not into the back pages the way that we are. There's no real checks. So what you see is kind of what you get. I don't believe there's a vast knowledge of the playbook in terms of, you know, wrinkles and adjustments and things you can kind of understand why 
the structure of the offense is the way that it is, you can just see it by the number of times they go directly into a bad look. Like, we're out number counted here to the strength, but we still run the ball into it. Doesn't make much sense. I'm not sure if he doesn't have the autonomy or he's just not there yet. I tend to lean towards the latter, but either way, the result is a, a very, very stagnant offense. Um, if you are interested, go watch the Vikings game and how Brian Flores cooked up a plan against these guys. Simulated pressures can create splash plays for your defense, and I think we get some of that this weekend, which means lots of blitzes, lots of guys in the line of scrimmage. Flores, you know, zero blitzes really confused him. They brought seven against six to get a, a scoop and score in that game where they just did not account for the extra rusher. And when, you have, when you're hot like that and you have a free runner because there's more guys that you can block that are coming, you have to throw the ball, and he doesn't always do that. So, like, you know, I just don't think he has a feel for what he's looking at in terms of potential, you know, confusion from what the defensive coordinator wants to do to confuse him his pocket management at best has been chaotic I I would say bluntly probably just terrible so I think that Fangio is going to have a chance to show him something simple rotate to complex and that's where I get to some predictions here I think we're going to get multiple interceptions here make life miserable on Bryce Young I expect us to double our pick count in this game go from two to four if not more that rhymes that's kind of my bold prediction here i think we'll change the picture post snap young will predeterminedly make throws that we have guys waiting on and if i'll get hyper specific here one of two things is going to happen in this game cater will get his first pick of the year in coverage against adam thielen thielen and javon holland or javon holland will jump one maybe both but at least one of those is going to happen they are just really struggling right now in pass pro as well, especially on the interior. And doesn't help that the quarterback bails on good pockets and tries to create like he did in college. You just can't do that. And I understand why he's not trusting of the pocket because it hasn't been, there hasn't been a lot of pocket integrity for him to work with. Injuries play a huge role in that. Again, down two starters and the interior swing guys also down. They were just struggling bad in the left guard position. And I actually noted that the guy that was out there, Zavala, was struggling with the same things that made Zach Sealer so effective, like push-pull, grip strength, power moves, and arm over, swim moves. But we'll see. It can't be any better, right? So the pressure numbers allowed for these guys. Equanu has 12. Uh, Zavala, the left guard, was at 28, but he's going to be out for Cade Mays, who has four and 65 pass-blocking snaps. Bozeman, 10. Throckmorton, 6. And then Taylor Moten, 18 off the right side. That's a high-pressure number yielded there. There just hasn't been a lot of connectivity on that offensive line. In general, the pass pro doesn't look, to me, like it's currently operating as a singular unit. You know, Moten has really struggled with speed, and I'm curious to see, you know, either potential matchup there, whether it's Jalen Phillips back into the fold or if it's a heavy dose of Andrew Van Ginkle off that side once again because the tapes that I watch, the things that give him the most issues are speed but also speed to power, and that's like Phillips' best move. So something to keep an eye on there if we go you know matchup wise if jp goes 15 versus their right tackle could be a fun uh, potential takeaway option there for miami with a good strip sack or something and then third i mentioned earlier they just struggle to identify a hierarchy among the weapons because the separations it's like 2021 dolphins man it's been bad 2020 dolphins let's not put waddle in there all five of their targets are under three yards average separation in order of top separation it goes marshall then hertz Hurst, sorry, then Thielen, then Chark, and then Mingo. Like, Chark's that low? Surprises me. So perhaps we can generate some tight window throws and get some hands on footballs. Just one, two picks this year. Would love to see that change. And again, Thielen's the engine of the offense that it runs through. So I'm looking for a big game for Cater Kohu because I like his matchup in that spot, in the slot. The most frequent thing they do successfully 
is get in-breaking routes over the ball from outside leverage corners. I like how much we saw Holland play the hook zone last week, that kind of five to eight yards over the football. Maybe he can intersect on some of those throws. Again, jump around and take it back for six maybe. I'm very curious to see how they match up. But like I said, Thielen's the go-to guy. I want to see Cater inside and then on the outside. Like all these guys are big physical players, which are the players that X matches up the best with. Like Darren Waller, right? X was very good against Darren Waller in that Giants game. I expect X to have a big game here as well. So there you go. That's the defensive breakdown. What's at stake in this game? It's a copy and paste from last week. NFC opponents have the smallest impact in terms of tie-breaking scenarios for playoff implications but still each win and loss counts the exact same right by the column standards not by the tiebreakers but wins and losses all the same you're at home against a struggling football team with a big primetime game next week i think it's a good test for truly adhering to the task at hand the day at hand don't look ahead a win gives you five and six starts that's impressive it keeps you on top of the division it keeps you at pace at worst with Kansas City at top of the conference. And it gives you a chance if you get if you get it, you go on the road next week. Cause like you can, you know, like in college football, for instance, they always build up a big matchup, like a big SEC matchup, right? And then someone loses the previous week to a power a group of five school. It's like, oh, so much for that matchup. You're in a position right here to go get your cupcake, go get your win, and then you can really prove yourself and change the narrative that has falsely developed around you in terms of you're a fraud against big teams. They've played one good team this year. Well I digress. The Chargers are a good team. I'm not doing that argument here. We got blown out by the best team we faced so far. I get the idea there, but to call them frauds and say they can't beat good teams, give them a chance to play more good teams. Here's what I'm trying to say. And you get a chance to set yourself up for that situation with the win here in this one. I also enjoy the playoff probability uh, leverage charts. Essentially, what are your playoff odds if you win or if you lose? A good example of the NFC games having the smallest impact is that our playoff odds increased by just 2% based on these models with that win last week over the Giants. So it'll be the same this week. We stand to gain 3%. From our current 82% playoff odds, but a loss in the wrong direction, it goes 14% backwards. So that's what's at stake. You have more to lose than you have to gain here. And that's kind of how these games go, right? My three keys to victory. Identify Brian Burns, Derek Brown, and Von Bell in every single snap. So they're game wreckers. Contain them. Don't give them takeaway or sack opportunities. Make sure you have doubles when you need them. When you have deep drops, make sure that Von Bell's not, you know, falling off into zones that he shouldn't be in. Just key those three guys every single snap. Key number two, keep the Panthers offense guessing. Change the picture post-snap, and you're going to have lots of success because they don't have answers and wrinkles and adaptations to what their original plan is. So keep the offense guessing. And then three is take what the defense gives you. I think you're going to get soft and off and very conservative defense here, and their structure is kind of like ours. Limit big plays, rally and tackle. They haven't done a good job of that, but that's the structure of the defense. Try to win in the red zone. So take what's there, run the football, stay on schedule. And then the areas of concern versus areas to exploit, I don't think these are necessary when you're two touchdown favorites. So we'll return this segment next week against the Philadelphia Eagles. My prediction here, 37 to 6. I don't think they'll get anything done on offense. I think they stand to make us sustain a little bit longer drives comparatively, which reduces the potential of 40 burger by a little bit, but no reason to think we cannot execute. I think we'll see some short fields, maybe even score a touchdown on defense, but I have three takeaways, a bunch of sacks, an efficient passing attack, and a good running game, and cruise into the winner's circle as the game begins to look lopsided and then gets out of hand by the early third quarter. I thought my 44-10 last week would have been freaking perfect, if not for the pick six. That's my time. 
We'll have a Panthers beat writer on the podcast tomorrow. I have not yet identified who that is because I am sending emails much to no avail. So uh, let me know if you know someone who wants to do my podcast for the Carolina Panthers. We'll also have Kyle Krabs on Friday and then Daniel Oyafusi of the Miami Herald Talk Dolphins defense on the Friday podcast. That's going to be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, all that fun stuff. Follow on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast with Seth and Juice. Check out the YouTube channel for media availabilities and Dolphins Today and so much more. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up. Carolina Cameron, Daddy's coming home.